One of the stages children go through a lot, and children, you can listen to this because I know you're going to relate to this. There are times that children just like to answer every statement and every proposition and every command with, why? Well, no to, no would be it. (laughs) But this morning, the proposition is answered with, why? Well, just because, but why? And then you give them a reason, but why? And then eventually, most wise parents realize that, here we go again. I'll never be able to answer this and get anything but why. Ad finitum. Forever and ever. Amen. Just why? Children, have you ever done that before? Have you ever done that to your parents? And you just wonder why? And sometimes when we ask why, we're really asking a real question, aren't we? We want to know why. So this morning, I want you to answer this question and and respond to this statement with why. Jesus Christ raising from the dead is a big deal. And you say, why? Why Why is it a big deal? Do we really understand why it's a big deal? Is this something that we just just assume? It's in our faith and we know it's a big deal. I mean, we dress up on this day and and we we greet each other with the same um, call to worship and we sing these grand hymns about the power of God and the resurrection of Christ. But it is a big deal for us. It is, the, it is the point in history that everything turns. Everything before that point looks forward to the resurrection, and everything after the resurrection looks back to the resurrection as the center point in history. And so it is a big deal. It is something that's important to our faith. It is something that if the resurrection is not true, we are fools. I mean, Todd just read to us that wonderful passage from 1 Corinthians 15, but there's a a, a stronger question before us today, and that, why, and that is, why does it matter? Why does it matter? How does it affect me tomorrow? Today's the big day. What about the day after Resurrection Sunday? What about the day after that? What about when it's dark in my soul? What about when I lose someone close to me? What about when the world crashes around me with silliness? And then that silliness turns into dishonoring God and danger to my family. What does the resurrection mean then? That's the question before us that Peter will answer for us. And I want you to notice right from the beginning, when we look at this passage, there are no commands for us. This is all telling us what God has done in Christ through the power of the Spirit. And yet, we are told that we are to rejoice in all situations because of this. So turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Now our focus today is going to be on verses 3 through 5, but we've been in another book. I don't remember which book it is. For <laughs> We've been in Isaiah for many weeks, so now we jump into this rich introduction, possibly one, one of the top richest introductions in the New Testament, this in Ephesians 1. So we want to understand a little bit about where our verses come from but I'm going to start in verse 6. We'll do this a little bit, what might seem backward to you. I'm going to have you stand and we'll read the text in just a minute. But right now, 1 Peter chapter 1, I want you to look at verse 6. In this you rejoice. Now the in this is what we're about to look at. Okay, I'm drawing us to the end results. I'm drawing us to where, where we come from before we get to this. In this you rejoice, though... Now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. 
Now, doesn't that seem like something that we are walking through in the world today? We're grieved by various trials. Everything that's going on around us makes no sense. Ten years ago, we wouldn't have even had these conversations out loud, but now we're having them. Ten years ago, some of us were thinking our kids and grandkids will suffer persecution, but now we know it's already starting. And in our lifetime, we could have people come in and forbid us from worship. We, We have definitions being changed, evil being called good and good being called evil, and yet still we are told, in this you rejoice, though now... For a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And I don't know about you, but I am grieved. Some days I'm angry. Some days I'm overwhelmed. But I'm always grieved. I'm always wondering when God's patience will run out with us. And that's his business, isn't it? But we have a business to do as well. You see, our lives are to be this this word of praise back to God. Our lives are to be a doxology lived in front of God, in front of the world that gives praise to him. Look at verse six again. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in what? Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So our lives, even though we're walking through various trials, should be full of rejoicing so that our faith is strengthened and those trials do strengthen our faith. Faith, it it adds faith upon faith upon faith so that our lives, just by living them with faith in God and believing in his power, result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is when Jesus Christ returns. So back in verse six, in this you rejoice. What leads to that? What leads to our ability to live lives that are a doxology? Well, verse 1. We're going to get to verse 3. Verse 1 of 1 Peter 1. Peter, there's our author, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he identifies himself as one of the apostles. That means he's speaking with authority. He's speaking with the, the authority of one who witnessed Jesus Christ. He is also the one that denied him, and yet God still has his way with him. His failure doesn't stay a failure, does it? This is the Peter who is brash and full of himself and yet denying three times, and now he's writing. I think Peter has the experience to write something to comfort us. Two, here's our audience, those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Okay, so let's break that down. There's much theology in these first couple of verses that we're just going to scratch the surface of because we need to get to verse three. But he's writing to people who are elect, chosen, okay? God has a people that he's chosen for himself, and aren't we thankful that he does? Because what God intends to bless his people, when God intends to bless his people with salvation, he blesses his people with salvation. There is none that fall through the cracks. He has preordained this from the foundations of the world, and Peter is writing to people who are elect, exiles or foreigners or strangers in the dispersion 
Or maybe your version says the diaspora. So one thing we, we would know about Peter if we were progressing verse by verse is he uses many Old Testament covenantal terms and he applies them to believers. His, his language is full of Old Testament language that God used for his chosen people, the Jews, and he puts it for God's chosen people, the church, and he applies it to them. And so he's beginning this by saying that they're, they're dispersed, they're, that they're strangers who have been dispersed. Now this language was first used of Israel and Judah, especially of Judah when they were sent into exile. Just think of all we're learning in Isaiah. They were sent in, they were dispersed from their land. They were the diaspora. Now these people in the first century, after Jesus has lived his life and died and risen again and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, these are people who maybe some of them have been physically dispersed from their homes. There there is truth to this. They've been physically dispersed. They've been kicked out of their homes because of their faith. But the primary way that Peter is using this is that these are Christians walking in this world, and in this world we're strangers, we're aliens. This is not our home. That when we have been redeemed, when we have been brought into the grace of God through Christ, this world is no longer our home. It doesn't mean that we don't live here and we, live, we don't live here with certain principles and we don't engage the people around us, but our hearts are made for somewhere else now. And we'll get to why that is. So he's writing to this group of people, probably both Jews and Gentiles, okay? Probably both, maybe more Gentiles than Jews, but, but a, a mixture of people in, look back at your, your text in the second half of verse one, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now these are five different regions that make up a large portion of land. And it goes all the way over from, if you just think of your Bible maps and you think of the Mediterranean Sea, everything north of the sea, almost all the way over to the Aegean Sea, and probably a little bit all the way to the Aegean Sea. All of that is the, the people that, Paul, or that, that Peter is writing to. He's writing to people scattered all through there, different walks of life. Some live in a city, some live in the country. Some are poor, some are richer, some are Jews, some are Gentiles, but he's writing to them because they are believers, that they are in Christ. So even as we think of his original audience, we know that we're part of that, are we not? Because we are of the diaspora. If we are in Christ, we are walking in this world awaiting the next. Our inheritance is not here, it's in the next world. That This is us as well. And we come from all walks of life and we are all believers. And you say, well, how do you know he's talking to believers and not non-believers? Well, look at verse two. The elect are according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. Four or five sermons in there, right? We're going to do this quick, because I want you to see what's presumed about his audience and what's presumed about you if you are here in Christ. This is what you are elect. If you are a believer, you are elect because that's what the Bible says. God will, God, all the, Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me, I will, I will get almost all of them. I'll only leave a couple behind. Is that what he says? I will lose none of them. Before the foundation of the world, God has set his affection. How do I know that? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. 
This isn't just that God looked out through the corridors of time and knew what was going to go on. This is a loving knowledge. This is an intimate knowledge that God has of his elect. So we are the elect according to his foreknowledge, long, knowledge from long ago in which he knows us. He knows us as his people. God the Father does. But it's also in the sanctification of the Spirit So we're seeing the Trinitarian blessing here. We're seeing the Trinitarian work of God the Father, the Spirit, and of Jesus Christ. So in the sanctification of the Spirit, the Spirit calls, and the Spirit is the one who woos us unto the Father. And the Spirit, after we're saved, is the one who who equips us in the world. He He is the helper that Jesus sends after he ascends. So we have the the work of the Father and the work of the Spirit. And now for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. So this brings us down to the work of Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. What did we learn in Hebrews about his blood? It inaugurated the new covenant, right? When he spilled his blood, the new covenant was secured. And so that's where we are as believers. All that new covenant language is applied to us and applied to his hearers. So it is in obedience to Jesus Christ. And we'll look at some of these promises in a minute. Boy, I hate skipping over all of this so quickly because there's a lot in here. But do you see that he is singling out believers and he has a message for us? And we as believers can walk in the craziness of this world even though we're grieved by various trials and we can have our life, our life result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, how? Verse three. Let's stand and we'll read verses three through five, which is the text we'll dig more into. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And that is a plural you. Who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The grass withers and the flower falls. The word of the Lord forever. You may be seated. So in these verses, we are shown three reasons the resurrection life is a life of doxology. Three reasons the resurrection life is a life of doxology. Doxology just means a word of praise. It has to do with God's glory being spoken back to him. So our lives are a word of praise. And we see this right in the beginning with the first um, reason that our life is a life of doxology. We bless God because he acts toward us in his mercy. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now one thing Peter does constantly through his letter, this letter and his second letter, is to take all of this Old Testament uh, theology and verbiage and root it in the person and work of Christ. Always rooted in Christ's work. And we see that here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It starts with this, uh, this, this blessing. We might call it a eulogy. The blessed be uh, part of that verse. Um, eulogetos, where we get our word eulogy from. And it just means we're, we're saying good things. We're saying blessed things about someone else. In this case, to God. 
Now, God doesn't need this from us. Amen. He's complete in who he is. He needs nothing from us. But when we bless him, it brings him glory. It brings him pleasure because it brings him glory. And everything God does, he does for his own glory because he is the perfect one. He is the holy one. He is the righteous one. He is, he is the one that knows everything and is everywhere all at once. And, and no other God, no other being is like him. So by definition, everything he does brings glory to himself because all things have their being in him. And so when we, get, when we bless God, it is us that receives the benefit because we are telling God back to him, we know who you've told us we are and we've experienced who you are in our life and now we're blessing you. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, exclamation point. Now, can we just stop there and ask ourselves, how many days start like this for you? How many challenges, this is your first response. I'm stabbing myself here. Do Do you feel the Holy Spirit pricking right now? This is the mark of our life if we're a believer. That everything we go through, everything that we respond to is blessed be God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who, and we can go on for hours. How many How many negative thoughts about a situation can you have if you start here and you say, blessed be the God and Father of my Lord Jesus Christ, who, and then you start reeling off his blessings. When do you run out? You don't run out before you forget the complaining you were going to do, before you forget the evil you were going to do, before you get the sorrow you were going to feel. I'm talking to myself here. This text has put me in the dust this week, so I'm going to try to get you in the dust because it's a good place to be. Because if we want to live lives that are bring glory, honor, and praise to God, we got to start in the dust because it can't be about us. And all of the trials in our life that can overwhelm us, all of them start with us if they don't start with blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is where we start. And you say, well, Pastor Rob, you said you're telling me why the resurrection matters. Well, you saw the resurrection right in the center of this as causing everything that we're about to bless God for. So we bless God because he acts toward us in great mercy. But secondly, we bless God because he caused us to be born again. First of all, to a living hope through Christ's resurrection from the dead. Now look in verse 3. After the the eulogy, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, now right there we need to pause a little bit. What is God's mercy? God's mercy is giving us what we don't deserve. It's sparing us from what we do deserve and giving us things we don't deserve. Because we, without Christ, are dead, right? We are dead in our trespasses and sin. We have no pulse. We're not just lying there needing resuscitation. We're not just lying there thinking, well, if I could just get a gasp of air, I could fill my lungs. We're dead, flatlined, no pulse, spiritually. We're walking around. I mean, I mean, people who do not know Christ are the, are the picture of the walking dead. Make all the movies you want about this, but the people who are walking around dead spiritually, that is the picture of the walking dead, and that's who we are. So we are in need of something, and we are in need of something that we cannot do ourselves, And so, but but where we're standing at there is exactly where we deserve to stand, because our sin makes us an enemy of God. 
This is where you all were before you came to Christ. Some of you may be here now. That you are not alive to Christ. You are dead in your trespasses and sin. And so mercy is needed to be given to you because you can't do this for yourself. And it's not only just mercy. What does the text say? Look back. What does the text say? According, according to his great mercy. You can't just leave it as mercy. And that's good enough, isn't it? Just to receive what we, not receive what we deserve and to receive what we don't deserve, we, that's enough. But this is great mercy. And because we are dead, that mercy needs to be great. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean God has some that's just mercy and some that's great, some that's gigantic? No. God has mercy and it is great. Why? Because it flows from his character. It flows from his being. When he exercises mercy, he can do nothing else but exercise great mercy. And so when, when, if you look at what Peter is saying, according to his great mercy, what? Well, he's done something. His great mercy has caused him to do something. He has caused us to be born again. Born again. Now, if we're dead in our trespasses and sin, what is our greatest need? It's to be made alive. It's to be made receptive to his mercy. It's to be made alive and spiritually have our heart beat again. So we are to be born again if we are to be in Christ. And if we are part of the elect exiles, there comes a time where God grants us repentance of faith and we receive that mercy of being born again. This is the first breath of God into our lives. This is not just a New Testament, is it? This is an Old Testament truth as well. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Before your heart is circumcised, this is that Old Testament and New Testament language to talk about our heart, which is it's not beating. it's, It's dead. It's a heart of stone is what the scriptures say. There's no life to it. But when God circumcises our hearts, when God renews that heart, when God brings us to life in our heart, this is the new birth. And then we live according to Deuteronomy 30. Jeremiah 31 says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Ezekiel chapter 11, and I will give them one heart, that is a unified heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Now that's not flesh in the New Testament bad sense, right? That's, that's flesh is in, it's stone which doesn't breathe, doesn't beat, doesn't, doesn't have any life to it, to one that is beating and breathing and has life. I will give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes, there's obedience, and keep my rules and obey them, there's obedience, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Now we could go to other passages in the Old Testament, but this is what's promised to us in Christ, in the Messiah from the Old Testament view. 
in 2 Corinthians 5.17, something that many of you have memorized. If you started memorizing through the Navigator's Scripture memory system, you probably you memorized this verse first. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, behold, the new has come. It's a new creation. It's, it's, not just, it's not just there's partly new. It's a new creation in our spiritual life. Now, granted, we're still fighting sin in this world, right? We still have to fight sin, and we fight sin from this new creation because now we have a heart that's turned toward God. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. going to begin in verse 1, the third chapter of the Gospel of John. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So these are just a few verses that talk about this new life that's given to those people who all of us were, who are dead in their trespasses and sin. When God has mercy on us, he breathes on us through his spirit, and we are born again. We are renewed. We, are, we, are, we, call, this, we call this in the, in the doctrinal area that this is our regeneration. This is where God affects change in us. It's all of God, not of us. Right? We, we use these terms called monergistic and synergistic. Monergistic means one work. Synergistic means more than one work. So this is monergistic. This is one work. God is alone is doing this. And so back in 1 Peter, if you're not back there, turn back in 1 Peter. Peter agrees with this. He says, he has caused us to be born again. So God has acted in such a way to make us alive when we were dead and it's out of his great mercy that he does this but he tells us a little bit more that anchors us on this day of all days doesn't he in verse in verse three according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope we'll come back to that through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead so 
When Jesus Christ came, he came born of a virgin. He came without sin. He lived his life without sin as he grew, and he lived his life among his people that he came to save, and he identified with them all the way unto death, even death on a cross. And nowhere along the line did he sin. And so when he died, which was in accordance, as Todd read for us earlier, in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures, he died, and three days later, God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus raised him from the dead. All three persons of the Trinity were involved in raising him from the dead. And the reason this is important, the reason we ask why, is because everything flows out of that. This is a God with the power to do that. This is the God with the power to do what he said he would do thousands of years before. What he said he would do in the Old Testament scriptures. What he planned to do before the world even began. This is a God who had the plan and the power to carry it out. And no one and nothing can thwart him. So when Jesus raises from the dead, there are going to be implications of that for us. Amen? It's not just that we sit back and say, yeah, I serve a God who rose from the dead. We serve a God who rose from the dead and therefore we will be raised from the dead. Hallelujah! That's what comes to us. And so... He ties our regeneration to, he says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It affirms that he was dead in the tomb, and it affirms that he rose from that grave so that he is alive. That's why we sing on this Sunday, how many ways did we sing he's alive this morning? Because it's the power of the resurrection that's even directed toward us in our sanctification on a daily basis. Well, we skipped over one part simply because I want to draw all of this as flowing from through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But we're born again to a living hope. Now, I've let the words stand through our text today of living hope and inheritance and salvation. But I think for Peter, he's talking about the same thing. In Peter's mind, our salvation, our inheritance, that's all of our living hope. And why is it living Because it comes through Christ, and Christ is not dead. He is living. And therefore, when when we come into a relationship with Christ, all that regeneration language that that we just learned of the new birth, we become living because Christ is living. He rose from the dead, and our hope is a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's not a, it's not a maybe kind of sorta. It's not like, I hope it doesn't rain today so I can mow my yard, where we don't really know what's going to happen. A biblical understanding of hope is, I know that I know that I know, so now I have hope. I know what's coming, So I have hope now, and my hope is in the one who will come. My hope is the one who has come once and will come again, and all of his promises that are given to me. So we're born to this living hope, and he's going to describe what this living hope looks like. Let me just read again so we keep this in our mind. I think you should have it memorized by the time we finish. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to something, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now verse four starts with another two, doesn't it? Now this could be a second, a second reason we would give mercy and that's the way I've, I've kind of broken this, this out that he caused us to be born again to a living hope and to an inheritance. But I think the living hope and the inheritance are probably the same thing. Now he's going to describe it a little bit more. We have this idea of inheritance all through the scripture, don't we? 
It comes in the Old Testament. Israel is promised an inheritance of the land. And we see even in the Old Testament, the promises being fulfilled in a different way. We see the promises in the Old and New Testament being filled for all those who are in Christ with a different land, with the new heaven and the new earth. That's where the promises are fulfilled. It is our eternal life. It is when Christ comes again and gathers his own and takes them in to eternity. That's the inheritance we're promised. And it starts now. We experience it now. Ephesians tells us that we are currently, if we are in Christ, spiritually seated with Christ, the exalted Christ in the heavenly places, and all the blessings that are his are ours. And we don't don't see them completely like we will then. We use these phrases all the time that we were saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. We were saved at a certain point in time. We repented of our sins. We were made in union with Christ because of God's great mercy toward us. But we're being saved because all along our salvation produces the fruit of sanctification, the fruit of the Spirit, where we are growing in Christ and we are being conformed into His image and likeness. And we will be saved eternally and finally on the day that Christ returns. All of that is wrapped up in our passage here. So this inheritance, he describes it as imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for us. Now, how many ways can he tell tell us that that inheritance is safe? And we're not going to lose it because we didn't gain it. Someone is keeping it for us. And he says, first of all, that it's imperishable. There's no way that it will rot like everything else in the world. How many people during this tornado, all the people who have lost power, some still don't even have it restored, have had stuff perish in refrigerators and freezers. It's all around us that things die. We live in a world that is tainted by sin and things die. Our inheritance, imperishable. Nothing can touch it. There's no rot. There's no decay of it. It It is exactly as God intended it to be for us. But he also says it's undefiled. There's no sin involved in this. There's nothing that takes it and makes it ungodly, that makes it, that makes it tainted by sin at all. It's in its perfection, but it's also unfading. Now, we know all around us things fade. How many times have you left something in a windowsill and come back and it's a different color? I mean, it, things just fade. It happens. Nothing, nothing is eternal except the spiritual through Christ. And so he's saying in every possible way that our inheritance, which let me just put a point on our inheritance. The point on the inheritance is our inheritance is Jesus. That's the point. We have salvation in Christ. We have eternal life in Christ because God the Father worked in Christ to provide salvation for his people. We have freedom from sin. Um, we, We are set free from the power of sin and the penalty of sin in this life. But in the next life, we will have no no sin at all to deal with. Why? Because of Christ. Our inheritance is eternity with Christ, with the perfect one, with the one who came and died and rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come back for his people. That's our inheritance. Now, that can never go away. And everything in this world is transient. I just read an interesting fact this week that I did not know. Of the Fortune 500 companies in in 1955, you know how many were still in existence last year? 49. 49 companies of the Fortune 500 in 1955 are still in existence. 
Now, that just shows you everything's passing. Now, if you live long enough, you're going to say, do you remember when we had Amazon and Facebook and all of that? Back when, back when I was a kid, we had Amazon. And they'll be gone. Of all the companies that we look at now that are, that are powerful and making lots of money, their creators weren't even born in 1955, except one of them who was born in 1955. Everything is transient, but our inheritance is not. So when we're living this life, where should our eyes be fixed? On this world? We have a role in this world. We have a gospel to preach. We have trials to endure to make our faith stronger. But our eyes are lifted up, are they not? They're lifted up to the inheritance, to the next life that will come that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. But look at the end of verse 4. It's kept in heaven for you, for us. It's a plural you in the Greek. It is kept in heaven. So it's not here for us to squander, although we taste it, we experience it. This is God's gift, his son to his people. And there is nothing that can separate us from that inheritance. All because Jesus died and rose again on that day. His tomb is empty. So we've seen the first two reasons that the resurrection life is a life of doxology. We bless God because he acts toward us in his great mercy. We bless God because he caused us to be born again to a living hope and an inheritance. And we finally bless God because he guards us until we receive our inheritance. Look at verse 5. It's kept in heaven for you, which is us, if you're a believer today, who, so now we're going to describe the you. Who are we? By God's power. Now what power have we just seen? The power to raise Christ from the dead, right? The power of all powers demonstrated in a way that's never been demonstrated before of all the power to raise him and all the defeat that happened to his enemies when that happened, who by God's power are being guarded. So not only is our inheritance kept in heaven, but now while we're in this life, while we're living in this life, while we're enduring various trials, we are being kept by the same power that raised Christ from the dead. This word guarded, it has the idea of a military guarding, but it's also the words that I should be able to say by memory, but everything I try to say by memory this morning probably won't um, happen. Philippians chapter 4, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, the Lord is at hand. So this is about our life in the world because Christ is coming. Do not be anxious about anything. You know these verses? But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, with blessing God, being thankful for everything that, he's, that he does and, and does for us and all of his mercy. And when we live that way, the peace of God, which surpass, surpasses all understanding, will what? Guard, the same word, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So when we're living in a world and we're tempted to be overwhelmed by various trials, that's the way we work. That's the actual fleshing out of what it means that God is guarding us by his power. We are submitting ourselves to him and to his will through prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, and he, through Christ, guards our hearts so that we are not overcome by the world. Calvin said about God's power, no one is truly persuaded of the coming resurrection unless he is seized with wonder and ascribes to the power of God its due glory. 
So we're, we're not going to truly believe in the resurrection. Our own resurrection, Christ was resurrected from the dead. He is the first fruits. And so that promise is that all of, all of his people will be resurrected to eternal life. Now there's also the promise that there will be people resurrected to eternal punishment. All of that in Christ. And we as believers are not going to truly believe in that unless we're overwhelmed. We are, we are seized with wonder and ascribed to the power of God. It's due glory. This is the power at work in us. But look at what else it says. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Now what does that mean? How are we guarded through faith? Well, faith is a gift from God to all who believe. He grants us the gift of repentance and faith in our new birth. And then as we're living, we're doing everything by faith. If we don't do it by faith, it is sin. Remember what we learned from Paul? If it's, anything is not done by faith, it is sin. We are living according to our faith in God. We are believing in his power. And as we do, he is guarding us. What happens when we don't believe that God is powerful enough to guard us. That's when we're overcome by the world, isn't it? Because we think, I have to take care of things. I have to come up with the wise way to do this. It's my power that has to move me forward because we're taking our eyes off Christ and onto ourselves. And at that point, we cease being guarded by God's power because who are we being guarded by? Us. So we're guarded by faith. We're, we live our life in, uh, by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us, says Paul in Galatians. So we're living all the time by faith, and as we do, God is guarding us because we will not be left behind. We will not suffer loss here that is eternal. All the loss we suffer here is nothing. It's momentary light affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. And all of that is based because Jesus came and lived and died and he did not stay in the grave. He was resurrected. And that resurrection power is directed toward us. And when we live like that, holding on to his power and, and seeing his power sustain us because we're walking by faith in him, then we are just trumpeting his glory to the world around us. So what are we guarded for? We're guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The last, the, the last when Christ returns and we're re finally and fully redeemed and there's no more sin, no more death, no more dying. We're in his presence forever. We're in his presence worshiping without any sin. We're in the holiness of the Lord face to face with our God. That will happen when Christ returns. And Christ is returning again to get all of those that are his because he is the first fruits in his resurrection and we will be resurrected to newness of life. So we are guarded until we receive that inheritance as it's described here, uh, the, the, the living hope, the inheritance, the, the final salvation were guarded by his power through faith for a now ready but future full, fully filled salvation. So the salvation, there's nothing left to accomplish. Jesus paid it all. Jesus accomplished everything. He, he said, it is finished. All of that was accomplished on the cross. And he goes away to prepare this place for us that has this perfection because it is our inheritance of him himself. It is our final salvation when there will be no more grief that we have. There will be no more trials in this world that we are even tempted to grieve over. 
And so when we are thinking this way, we're looking forward to that, and it's motivation for today, is it not? All because Jesus rose from the dead. It's motivation for us today. We're like the little boy, the little five-year-old, who in his life has had a hard life. And his dad is trying to make things a little bit more joyful for him. And so he says, you know what? We're going to go on a picnic. He really misses his mommy. His mommy's not around anymore. And we're going to go on a picnic. And the little boy's never been on a picnic. So he gets excited about all this. And they prepare everything. And they load the car. And they make all the sandwiches and everything they're going to bring. And they go to bed. That's for the next day. And they go to bed that night. And the little boy, he just can't sleep. He's just excited about this picnic. And all of a sudden, he gives up fighting, and he burst into his dad's room, and he said, Daddy, I can't sleep. And the dad's rubbing his eyes, saying, why can't you sleep? And he said, because I'm excited about tomorrow. So the dad says, you need to go back to sleep, though, because if we don't get rest, we can't go on that picnic tomorrow. Well, a little while longer goes, and the boy rushes in, and he rushes into his dad and wakes him up again. And his dad said, I thought I said you go to sleep. You be excited, but it's for tomorrow. He said, oh, I'm still excited, but here's what I want to do. Daddy, I want to thank you for tomorrow. That's the way we live. We're living our lives every day saying, Father, thank you for tomorrow. It is strength for today because Jesus left the tomb empty. And because he did, I am a new life. I am a new creation. And I am looking forward to that day and its motivation in this day because I don't have to worry about anything. The various trials, they do not distract me. Look at verse 6 again. In this, all that we just learned about from verse verse 1 all the way through, but specifically 3 through 5, in that, because of that, you rejoice. Though... Even though, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Our life is a life of rejoicing. And when we live that way, we are living a life of doxology before God. We are living the life that results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Turn over at the end of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. So that's the life now that we live until Jesus returns or we go to our our earthly grave. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I want you to see all the themes that he introduces that he ties up at the end of this chapter. He was foreknown. That is, Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. For our sake, Christ comes and lives and died, and we beheld his glory. Who, through him, are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave glory, gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. 
having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God for all flesh is like grass. And all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. He ties it all up and explains to us again why our lives are a doxology to God. And as we're living those, we need to remind ourselves of that. We need to remind ourselves constantly of what has already been done on our behalf. And this is why we take the Lord's Supper isn't it? We remind ourselves of everything that he's done. We're reminding ourselves that he willingly shed his blood and gave his body. He willingly died in our place. He willingly took on the wrath of God in our place. He was our substitute so that we might have life. And he went to the grave and on the third day was raised again and left the tomb empty because the resurrection is a fact. It was promised and it happened. And we're looking forward to when he returns again for our resurrection because all of his prom- all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus himself. So this is what we're reminding ourselves, what has already been done as we look forward to his return, saying, thank you, Father, for what you're going to do when he returns. It empowers us today. Take a minute to prepare your hearts for the Lord's Supper.